0: Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi from Princeton University. Today I'm here to talk to Professor uh, Ulrike Freitag, the author of A History of Jeddah, The Gate of to Mecca in the 19th and the 20th centuries, published this year, 2020 by Cambridge University Press. Ulrike Freitag is the director of Leibniz Zentrum Moderner Orient, that is ZMO, and, and professor of Islamic studies at the Free University of Berlin. She's the author of Indian Ocean Migrants and State Formation in Hadramaut in 2002, and co-editor of several volumes on urban history including urban violence in the Middle East published in 2015 By discussing this book we will explore not only the most important port city on the Red Sea Jeddah but also its regional and oceanic context We will walk along its seafront and observe the many dhows and steamships bringing muslim pilgrims from across the Indian Ocean, as well as camel caravans across the Arabian Peninsula. Known as the Gate to Mecca, or Bride of the Red Sea, Jeddah has been a gateway for pilgrims traveling to Mecca and Medina, and a station for international trade routes between the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean for centuries. Seen from the perspective of its diverse population, this first biography of Jeddah traces the city's urban history and cosmopolitanism from the late Ottoman period to its present day claim to multiculturalism, modernization, and Saudi nation building project. Speaking from Berlin, welcome Ulrika to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book.
1: Welcome, Ahmed, and thanks a lot for this interview.
0: Thank you. I would like to start the interview as we usually do by asking about yourself if you can say a few words about where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and if you had any influential mentors.
1: Well, I grew up in different parts of Germany and my parents for three and a half years actually also worked in Kabul, Afghanistan. But I would actually not claim that that is what sparked my interest in the Middle East. I actually studied history and had the aim of becoming a journalist. And somebody advised me that I should learn a language which not everybody knows. And for some reason, I ended up with Arabic and was super lucky to have a fantastic Palestinian Arabic teacher at Bonn University and a fantastic professor who had worked in Beirut. And both of them really brought the Arab world to life for me who had not traveled to any Arab country by that stage. And that is how I became interested in Arabic history. And then I had a chance to study after Bonn at the University of Freiburg and also at Damascus University. And this is also the country about which I first worked. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Um, So... Your your first book in 2002, Indian Ocean Migrants and State Formation in Hadramaut, to your latest book in 2020, A History of Jeddah. Can you tell us a bit about the first book and how that project led you to your latest book? How did you become interested in the Arabian Peninsula and literal societies in the Indian Ocean world?
1: I was really lucky that after having worked on Syria and history writing in Syria, I was invited by the German Agency of Development Corporation to participate as a consultant in a number of short-term consultancies in Yemen. And at the time, that was northern Yemen. So I traveled to northern Yemen. I became very interested. And when the time came to think of a post-PhD project, I was thinking of Yemen. And this was the time after Yemeni unification. And for the first time for West Germans, it became possible to travel to and work on southern Yemen, which is why I pursued that. Um, Also, I thought I had been to the north. And I started to read about southern Yemen and became very interested in the Indian Ocean connection of the region of Hadramaut, which is situated halfway between Aden and Oman, and um, started to work on southern Yemen and the Hadramaut Region. And of course, Hadramaut is very much marked by a history of migration, a history of migration to East Africa, to India, to Indonesia. And starting to work on this, I obviously traveled a lot in pursuit of sources. And I had hoped to find a lot in Indonesia. And I was really shocked when people there told me, well, you have to go to Mecca because here in Indonesia, we don't keep the old papers, but in Mecca they do. Now, as a non-Muslim, I cannot travel to Mecca, but I decided to travel to Jeddah instead. And I did not have any expectations at that stage. I did not know Saudi Arabia. I certainly did not know Jeddah. And I didn't know how to enter the country, which at that time was quite difficult. Luckily, a Hadrami Saudi helped me to obtain a visa to go to Jeddah, And I must say that was the most amazing surprise because having two gatekeepers or two door openers, as I would like to call them, I managed within the space of 10 days to meet very many different people who were extremely understanding, extremely helpful. And in the course of those 10 days, I really fell in love with the city of Jeddah and perhaps to explain the importance of the Hadramis to Jeddah, or why there are so many Hadramis in Jeddah and in the Hijaz, in the 19th century, they're said to have made up up to 50 percent of the overall population. So there's a very long-standing connection between Hadramaut and the Hijaz, And I would always say that it was the Hadramis who brought me eventually to Jeddah and who sparked my interest
0: in the urban history of that city. Fascinating. Um, So in the book, you share uh, a vignette about how the book idea developed. Uh, Can you share that? And what was the research process like and your writing experience, which you talked about a bit in the book?
1: Well, I was in the beginning, extremely cautious. I already told you the story of how I fell in love with the city. And I suppose... Five years after that initial brief visit of 10 days, I was invited with an official delegation to Saudi Arabia. And in the course of that visit, we were told by the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies that Saudi Arabia was opening its doors for foreign researchers, that it was possible to do historical research, but also um, sociological and political science research, which is not my field. And that was the point when I said, well, I'm ready to embark on a new project and why don't I give it a go? And I actually applied for a visa through the King Faisal Center. They very kindly accepted that request. And that allowed me in 2006 to embark on a first exploratory visit. In a sense, what I could do from here is obviously to read a lot of travel logs, to access some of the British archives. But I'm the kind of person who cannot do research on a place without being able to go there. And so I first, before embarking on the British archives, for example, I wanted to see and find out what I might be able to find locally. And in the course of that first visit with a, with the aim of studying Jeddah or the second visit overall, I went to the um, archives in Riyadh, the archives of the Dar al-Malikap al-Aziz, I went to Jeddah, I stayed with a friend and I tried to, in a sense, go to local bookshops, try to find people who would know about the history of Jeddah, try to inquire what there might be in terms of local documents, which exists in private collections, but that I found out only later. And after that, I went back and started to think about what I could potentially do with regard to this local history. And of course, the whole thing started with my fascination of Jeddah, which had very much to do with what is the main topic of this book, namely the felt cosmopolitanism, which was in such stark contrast to the general image of Saudi Arabia as a closed country, as a country rather hostile to foreigners, at least to non-Muslim foreigners. And in Jeddah, already during the first visit, I had experienced something quite different, in spite of it at the time being quite difficult to meet um, as a woman researcher, as a female researcher, to meet um, local historians, for example, who very often were male. Now, talking about the research process, I was trying to go after 2006, almost every year. Now, due to my job and due to the fact that I had two small kids, I could only ever travel for anything between two and I think the longest was 10 weeks. Um, But I tried to expand my network, to meet people regularly, to keep in contact. And thereby, eventually, I got to know not only local historians, but also some members of families who were willing to share either their oral histories or locally published family histories, which were sometimes only distributed in the families. Some people also showed me documents. Um, And in addition to that, I managed uh, to spend a few months in Oxford I at the Center of Islamic Studies, um, which allowed me to go through the British travelogues I spent a sabbatical in London when I was able to visit the British archives. I spent two weeks in Nantes looking at the French archives. I spent a month in Leiden, and the university there has a fantastic holding of not only Arabic newspapers, but also the collection of a Dutch orientalist, Christian snooker Ronje, with fantastic photographs as well. So slowly, slowly, I started to gather all sorts of different materials. And because I'm director of a research center, I started by writing a number of, diff- of articles on different topics, all the while thinking how I could eventually come to terms with this cosmopolitanism of Jeddah, which was my starting point and, in a sense, is also the end point in the book.
0: Uh, Beside the the usual archival work that historians put in their research, you've also consulted uh, oral histories, life histories, local family archives. Can you share with us uh, your fieldwork experience?
1: Well, it was very easy in a sense. I mean, um, people in Jeddah were extremely welcoming. They found it quite interesting that a foreigner would be interested in their family histories. So they were quite willing to meet me, to introduce me to their elders, um, to share their version of their family histories. They also often asked me, well, what have you found about us in foreign archives? So in a sense, we I was able also to share a little bit of what I had found with them Um, and sometimes people would come to me and say, well, you know, my family is originally from another place, but actually we've been living here for quite a while. So would you be interested to talk to us as well? I also tried to work, um, with local people engaged in the preservation of old Jeddah. I was working at a time when Jeddah was putting in its application for world heritage, which in the end was successful. And that was very interesting because I was with the through the help of some local architects able to meet some of the owners of old houses in old gender. And there, the reaction was quite different. Um, some of them found this interesting. Some of them said, well, look, you know, nobody needs these houses. They are old, they're derelict. Nobody wants to live in them except for perhaps some migrant workers. So why should we actually care about it? So in, these business circles, there was only limited interest in the history of Jeddah. I think that has to some extent changed with the city becoming World Heritage. Nowadays, you can notice that many people start to take care of the old houses, renovate them, think about putting them to new use as um, art galleries, as shops. Some are thinking of boutique hotels, coffee shops, um, so the the thinking about this is changing but um that really was a very fascinating process which I was able to observe as I was trying to do research.
0: And that really en- enriches the book. Uh often histories on the Arabian Peninsula rely heavily on colonial archives and in this book what you find um is really a multidisciplinary engagement with different source materials and that really made Jeddah comes to life from very different angles. Uh, the book is, is very rich and it has eight chapters. Um, I would like to turn to the book now, if you don't mind, and ask you about the first chapter, which is Why Jeddah? Um, in this chapter, you beautifully conceptualize the history of Jeddah in the long durée from its very foundation during uh, uh the Islamic caliphate time uh, all the way to the ottoman period and after to the sharifian and the saudi state um and you open the book with a local uh, poem about jeddah and the city motto of jeddah Ghir, which means jeddah is different to think about and historicize the notion of jeddah as different Can you describe your approach in writing this urban biographical history of the city through using micro histories of what you call interaction in urban space uh, in a thickened narrative within a global context?
1: Well, that's a huge question. I'll try to answer it and you might need to push me to return to the main question. Well, Jeddah is different is really what struck me when I first went to the city and it's also something which you can hear and read and also something which the more I traveled to Saudi Arabia the more I felt the difference in my case particularly between Riyadh and Jeddah. Um, so this Jeddah area for me started to encapsulate why I thought the city was very interesting um, now, the point is that in Jeddah itself, many people said, well, you shouldn't be writing about Jeddah. You should be writing about Mecca. And then I tried to understand, first of all, obviously, why people told me this. Well, it's quite simple because Mecca is the big religious center. But um, then I tried to understand how they would think about what makes Jeddah different. And that is really the aim in this entire book, that through the different chapters, I try to understand what makes Jeddah different. It is the influx of many people. And that brings me to this other term, which for me conceptually was very important, this Tehlez or the entrance hall of Mecca, which is a local term for Jeddah, Tehlez Mecca. And it really refers to a rather ambiguous space. And the ambiguity of the space, which allows for people who are not normally perhaps allowed to enter a house to pass through, um, this very ambiguity perhaps also partly explains some of the reservations by people about writing about the city. Because ideally, one should write about a pure city and not about a city which also accommodates sailors, which accommodates well, Muslims and non-Muslims, which accommodated at various points in time alcohol drinking and prostitution as any port city does. So in that sense, this very ambiguity of Jeddah is one of the points which perhaps also allowed for this extraordinary mingling of people um, who were on their way from the Indian Ocean either to Mecca, but also on on their way from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean and vice versa, because Jeddah was both. It was an entrance point for Mecca and it was a um, thoroughfare between these two oceanic systems. Um, Now, the microhistory of mingling by that, I mean looking at how this interaction, how this cosmopolitanism actually functioned. In contradistinction to people who have worked on cosmopolitanism from below in places such as Alexandria or Izmir or Marseille, I did not have things such as police records at my disposal. And so I'm looking at those spaces which have been described, for example, in the local histories. I look at the neighborhoods. I look at how people living in neighborhoods came together together. Because neighborhoods also often were quite mixed in terms of ethnicities, in terms of languages, not quite so mixed in terms of religion, because most people who settled were Muslims, Um, but also mixed in terms of professions. And so I'm trying to understand really how the different layers of population um, got to know each other, interacted, where there were conflicts, but also obviously how um, the society was bound together through very different links.
0: And, and you write that um, through the lens of what you call vernacular cosmopolitanism, which refers to, as you say, al- to alternative, particularly non-Western forms of cosmopolitan ethics, defined broadly as an openness to difference, whether to other ethnic groups, cultures, or religions, or nations. So how would you compare that to the Hijazi hinterland of Jeddah? And how did you use this, uh, uh, the lens of vernacular cosmopolitanism in trying to understand the fabric of Jeddah?
1: Well, actually, I would even prefer Muslim cosmopolitanism to vernacular cosmopolitanism because some, and, 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 and this comes a bit from my frustration of um, our terms of historical and sociological analysis being very much Western terms, deriving from the Western experience and vernacular to me somehow (laughs) seems to categorize this as non-Western and somehow second rank. And therefore I find Muslim cosmopolitanism perhaps a bit less, um, less laden with this debate while at the same time expressing the desire to integrate different experiences into something which we then describe with a term, which really, can describe a phenomenon, whether it is in South America, in Europe, or in the Middle East, or somewhere else, and thereby by opening it up. Um, And how I do it is by trying to find out first what is the local understanding, how do locals describe their interactions with people who settle, with hajis, with pilgrims, um, Uh, with immigrants, how do they describe their relationship to the outside world? Um, And if you say for Jeddah, this is true for Jeddah, but I think to some extent, that's at least what I hear, um, this is also very much true for Mecca and even, but perhaps to a lesser extent because it's also much more inland, to Medina um i think the hejaz in general and by this i probably mean more the hijazi cities than the um the the badia the the desert between or the semi desert between these cities is very much characterized by this very strong interaction with people coming from different parts of the world and becoming part of the local people it's it's to an extent that no longer you can distinguish except perhaps by the name or by the food whether people originally are from India or Indonesia or um, Africa or of Arab origin, because the language is the same, the dress has become the same, um, and they would consider themselves to be Hijazis or Makawis or Jeddawis. It's slightly different with the Bedouin, at least historically. Nowadays, things have changed a lot with urbanization of course. But the Bedouin were also involved with foreigners because they were obviously um, essential to the caravan trade. But at the same time they did not have that very intensive relationship with, um, with people coming to the Hejaz on a well in, in terms of intermarriage, in terms of Really sharing the living quarters with them for a long time, etc. So, there I would really make this distinction between the cities and between the um, Badia, the, the desert.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in chapter two, Between Sea and Land, Jeddah Through the Ages, you uh, situate Jeddah. Uh, in the last two centuries, and you zoom in in the last 100 years between 1840 to 1947. And you ask the question in the book, how did subsequent political regimes, such as the Ottomans from 1840 to 1916, the Sharifians from 1916 to 1925, and lastly, the Saudi state since 1925, attempt to govern and regulate the urban society? And what did it take to become a subject of these states? Um, So to answer this question, you start in this chapter by situating Jeddah and its long-dure history, as I've mentioned earlier. And I was wondering, uh, in your assessment, how Jeddah's long-dure, and particularly the recent last centuries, uh, uh, which situate Jeddah in its different uh, circuits, whether it's Arabian or African or Indian Ocean or Mediterranean, Um, would help us understand the watersheds and the history of Jeddah that you cover in this book. And maybe if you can use the impact of the Suez Canal opening in 1869 as a major watershed uh, that really breaks between what came before and what came after.
1: Well, the Suez Canal certainly was very important in... Terms not only of the economy by eventually, not immediately, but eventually shifting um, a lot of the traffic um, away from Jeddah to the ports at the northern and southern end of the Red Sea, um, but also by, in a sense, um, ushering in the, the age of high imperialism um and thereby also facilitating the international connections which had been there in the long durée, and that's why it was important to point to that, but by really accelerating them because obviously many more pilgrims from Southeast Asia, but even from North Africa, could come with the steamships, and it was only a brief period that the Hejaz Railway in the early 20th century then took away part of that traffic. So the in that sense, the Suez Canal was immensely important. And it really, in that sense, also increased the sense of Jeddah as an Indian Ocean city, meaning that you had many Indians, you had many Southeast Asians, but you also had many Central Asians. You had Persians, you had East Africans, you had North Africans, and they had settled in subsequent waves, really, of, immigration. Um, On the other hand, if we think of the history of the city in this Indian Ocean context, I think the creation of the nation states marks here, as in other parts of the Indian Ocean, a sort of break. Again, not an immediate break. Neither the Sharifs nor the Saudis immediately cut immigration. Indeed, the Saudis with the oil boom in the 1950s, 60s, 70s actually encouraged immigration, but on quite different terms. So I think, and I don't mean to idealize imperialism at all. Please don't misunderstand me. But I think the imperial age was marked, in spite of all the regulatory impulses of the empires, notably the European empires, it was marked by much more porosity of borders than the later nation-states. And I think we can see that, and this is something I actually described partly in the second last chapter of the book, by looking at nationality laws and how easy or difficult it is for people to move from one place to another and actually have this chance of becoming a Jadawi. Um, and there are many reasons for this. I'm I'm not judgmental, but I think if we are talking about what marks a major change, also eventually in the character of cities, that is certainly a very important mark.
0: Mm-hmm. And you really beautifully lay that out in the third chapter, The Changing Faces of Jeddah, in which uh, we encounter Jeddawis, uh, we almost talk to them, um, and it gets us thinking about who are these Jeddawis how far did their networks diasporic linkages and connections extend so I would like to ask you what difference do you observe between the oceanic and national senses of belonging in Jeddah you've mentioned the different migration regimes through the ages but what does that you know, translate into when we think about uh, belonging in the city
1: um well, another very big question. I mean, there initially what happened was that um, people came to Jeddah in, in different ways. They came, for example, as merchants. Um, they might have come, and very often merchants in the age of steam, but even more so in the age of the monsoon sailing, um, merchants would travel with their boats or they would travel with boats uh, which had probably goods by a variety of different merchants and, in a sense, paddle, travel from port to port trying to sell these goods. And some of them might settle in Jeddah. But, of course, on, the, on a merchant boat you had sailors who also might eventually settle, not be able to continue their travel, etc., that's one group of immigrants. The second group of immigrants were hadjis, pilgrims who arrived and for some reason or the other decided that they wanted to spend more time in the um, vicinity of the holy cities. And many of them then also found that Mecca had much less employment opportunities than Jeddah, where in the port, for example, you could find also unskilled work. And then you had people, for example, from the Hadramaut, which I mentioned initially, who might even have come walking across the desert over a 1,000 kilometers um, because Hadramaut was a rather poor area and they not only aspired to the holy places, but they aspired to work and they had heard that Mecca and Jeddah offered good work. And so you would also have young migrants, um, very often boys between 8 and 15 years, who would come, who would start to try to find some kind of employment. And if they were lucky, they would end up as trainees in merchant houses. And if they had a good hand for this, they might actually work their way up in a merchant business and start to become perhaps even a delegate of the owner of this merchant house, or they might be asked to travel with goods to other places, etc. And this could also happen to the last major group of immigrants who were the slaves, Um, slaves who would come not only from different parts of Africa, but they also came from the Caucasus, they came from India, A British consul at one stage discovered um, British women also as slaves. But I've also heard a very touching story by somebody from Jeddah who told me that his uncle disappeared as a young boy in Mecca and never was found again. And it's pretty certain that that uncle also was enslaved and probably sold to some place outside of Mecca outside of Jeddah, otherwise they might have found him again. So you have these very many different groups who come together, um, and that, of course, changed over time. Um, Nowadays, they're no longer slaves. Slavery was outlawed in Saudi Arabia in the 1950s, and even long before that, 100 years before that, the Ottomans already, under British pressure, tried to limit slavery more and more, actually prompting an uprising in the Hejaz for that reason, because slave trade was a very important economic factor. Um, And with the onset of nation states, it became much more difficult to become local. In the Ottoman Empire, you had residency for five years, and after that, you were entitled to be considered an Ottoman. Indeed, the Ottomans sometimes liked to consider people to be Ottomans in order to control them. Um, And with this becoming difficult, there's a different type of immigration. I mean, we all have heard about this kafala system whereby you can import labor, um, but these people will have to leave at the end of their lives. There's no question of them marrying into local families, something which many of the immigrants could do with great ease. And something with which distinguishes a port city such as Jeddah very much from cities in the interior such as Riyadh, where this would be considered to be um, quite outrageous. And particularly if we consider that local families gave their girls to immigrant boys or young men. Um, And usually in an in a Saudi context, a Man could marry somebody from the outside, but not the other way around. So here, really, you can see that um, there's a lot of very free interaction, which becomes more and more limited. And I mean, nowadays, it's quite difficult for Saudi women, for example, to marry foreigners. And for anybody from the outside, even if they have been resident in Saudi Arabia for their whole life, to acquire Saudi citizenship is Almost impossible. So here you get a little sense of the change. Now, this also means that in a Saudi national context, the notion of Arab origin has, because of the dominance of the Najdi model of um, identity, has become much more important. So Jadawis have sometimes been discredited as the spit of the sea or as the leftovers of the hajj. And for that reason, many Jadawis have started to argue against this. And so what you find, and this is a phenomenon which um, James Only has also described for the Gulf, you find that the migration histories often include... An Arabian origin. Now, of course, we know that with the conquest of the Arab lands by um, Muhammad and by the Khalifa, by the Khalifas after his death, um, his successors, um, Arab armies from the Arabian Peninsula conquered um, quite a lot of the Middle East. So Arab origin very often might make sense, but there's an amazing, how should I say, an amazing proliferation of Arab origins among people who ostensibly, come, ostensibly come from India, from Persia, from yeah, it's 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 mostly people from Persia, from India, and also sometimes from Eastern Africa. Of course, there were outward migrations also beyond the um, the Arab armies, the Islamic armies. Um, but there might also be a strong emphasis on this because it has become important to prove that you are of Arab origin. And it's even better if you are obviously of Qureshi origin and you can actually prove some sort of tribal background. So um, quite a number of the prominent Jadawi families um, nowadays integrate this this original migration from the Arabian Peninsula and then a return. So what you find in um, many of these family histories is an origin, a tale of origin on the Arabian Peninsula. Um, And very often, as I said, there are also historical facts which might or might not substantiate these histories. One example is um, that of the Ali Reza family. Um, The name already indicates that they come from Iran. They came from Iran in the 19th century, but the tale goes that some time ago, much longer Much before this um, re-immigration, they were part of Arab tribes from the eastern side of the Arabian Peninsula who migrated to Iran, settled there, and then eventually some of them returned as merchants. Now, this is a family which is amazing because it really spans from India to the Arab world and, of course, nowadays also to anywhere in the world, like like many um, Saudi families who have really branched out and um, through education and and careers uh, established themselves in many parts of the world. Um, But their tale of arrival in the Hijaz is quite similar to that of many others who might not have such an Arab origin. Um, in that the tale is that a basically one youngster of 12 years, more or less, arrived. The story is that he had to run away from persecution in Iran and then started to work with somebody from another family from the same area. And then very quickly, actually, managed to establish his own business, bring his brothers and establish basically a major import-export firm, which then um, really made that family into one of the notable families in a span of something like 30 or 40 years. And this is one of the things which I found so amazing and which shows the immense absorptive capacity of the local society that people who arrive more or less penniless can actually, through intermarriage, through alliance with other families, obviously also through hard work, through um, showing capacity, can actually become a leading notable family in such a short span.
0: I really enjoyed this chapter uh, because... uh you really have a sense of uh, examples of different families coming from different circuits, as you say it, from the Indian ocean world and elsewhere settling and uh, reimagining themselves over time. Um, In chapter four, you talk about the very urban space of Jeddah and it's it's changing dynamics and uh, urban layout. Um, And, you talk about development during and after the Ottoman reform period, including uh, a number of suburbs that were intimately tied to the city, but differed considerably in terms of the composition of their population. Uh, I would like to ask you, how did you visualize this, uh, you know, uh, extensive, uh, you know, sheet of data that you have at your disposal and incorporate that in the maps you read Uh to to understand the urban landscape and infrastructures? And how did the layout of the city developed in the 19th century? And how was that mapped onto social hierarchies, public works, and domestic spaces? I know these questions are big uh, because the book really has a lot of beautiful uh, sections that the reader can go through um, if they're interested in whatever aspect of the city. But I would like the, the listeners just to have a sense of um, the, the richness of 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 the descriptions you provide in this book, so if you can okay. tell us about actually, the layout of the city and how it develops
1: actually I was extremely lucky to find um, these uh, three or four maps which really guided me also in my inquiry into the urban spaces and in particular a map um, which, is dated, but the oil and it's an Ottoman map and it has extremely detailed information actually about the city. And the beautiful thing is that there's a map of about 30 years earlier, also an Ottoman map, which only shows the outline of the city. But comparing these two maps, I learned about one of the major urban works, which was the reclamation of land from the sea. Now, the um, one needs to understand that Jeddah um, has a does not have a natural harbour and um, rather a lot of coral reefs. and so ships actually had to anchor quite far out and then could come to Jeddah on little boats through a number of channels. But then the sea level was lowering, and therefore some of these channels actually stopped a little way from the shore. And the way this has been handled, and probably not only in Ottoman times, but possibly also before, is that um, the sea was filled in. It was filled in with rubbish from the city, a little bit like Beirut after the Civil War. We have to imagine it. And on that newly reclaimed land, um, the port facilities were extended. And, of course, that was one of the major um major concerns of the Ottomans who were interested in facilitating the pilgrimage and in facilitating trade. And so they used this newly reclaimed space to um, have quite extensive port facilities, to have storehouses, to have a large customs house, but also to build, for example, a building which housed the um, newly constituted Baladia, the municipality. Um, so this is one of the major Changes and the maps also then allow to see how the city um, expands. Initially, it expanded within its own walls. This is really true until almost the 1920s. Um, that the parts of this, the interior of the walls that had not been built up, were being built up partly on reclaimed land, but mostly also on land that had been there before, but not properly settled or not settled with real houses, only with huts. And these suburbs initially were suburbs of either urban labor, sometimes also slaves of immigrants, but then also of Bedouin who were active in the trade, in the transport, um, notably with Mecca and Medina. And these um, suburbs then after the 1920s and notably after the Saudi conquest when really security was um, was uh, established throughout uh, the region um, then these suburbs also become settlements of the well-to-do of the city who move out of the confines of the old city where the houses only could have a certain size and build new houses um, so Here we can see a kind of organic growth of the city. And as I said, the maps were really crucial to understand this. The maps are also very nice because they show you quite clearly that parallel to the shore, you have a line of warehouses and big magazines, um, which shows the commercial orientation. And then you have a different... Um, Sukh or Market Street, which traverses the city from west to east, which leads from the port to the Mecca port, the Mecca gate, sorry. Um, this is a route which nowadays is marked out for tourists coming to Jeddah. And this is the main route which the pilgrims took. Um, obviously the pilgrims also visited certain sites outside of Jeddah, notably the tomb of, um, of Eve, which is um, the cemetery of that tomb is still there. The tomb itself has been destroyed by the Wahhabis. Um, but you can really very nicely see uh, these two main axes of the city, which represent the two main economic occupations
0: of it. Mm-hmm. And then you bring that into chapter five, which is solidarity and uh and competition, the socio-cultural foundations of life in Jeddah. In this rich chapter, uh, we encounter the household, the quarters, the neighborhood, the different ethnic groups, their guilds, and so on. And we have a sense of how people practice rituals, what distinguished, let's say, uh, Jeddah as a center of publishing and and cultural gatherings, and even football. Um, so I would like to briefly bring this chapter together to ask this question. How can we understand the relationship between the city and its laboring populations and elites? What is the relationship between the city as as, as an urban landscape, as an institutions, and you know uh, the differential makeup of the city between laboring populations and these elites you talk about?
1: Well, I would actually argue that until really the 20th century, um, all of these groups lived together very closely. And so they were mostly sharing the same quarters. And this means that they went to the same mosques, they participated in the same religious celebrations, but also life cycle celebrations, such as marriages. Um, They might have participated in the same Sufi orders or in different ones, and there was a whole system of notably religious occasions when people would come together and interact. For example, um, people from one quarter visiting people off another quarter after the Eid um, to celebrate on the Eid. Um, there were certain celebrations related to the Hajj when the men went out of town, mostly with the pilgrims servicing them while the women remained in the city and had their own rituals, which is something, again, which brought women of different social classes together. So we have all sorts of different overlapping networks in the city. And this is really, to me, the core of how this um, cosmopolitanism came about, because people had different levels on which they interacted. Um, It starts from the... As you mentioned, the families and the households, but then it goes, spills over to the balcha, to the, to the small squares, which you find throughout the city, um, and which were gathering places either with small coffee shops or with seating arrangements in front of houses where particular groups of men would meet in the afternoons and the women would visit each other and obviously, meet in the houses, but also in semi-public spaces, so to speak, in the houses. So we have here a very tight interaction, and that is exactly something which changes when people start moving out of the old city, when the original population is being replaced first by internal migrants from the rural countryside and nowadays um, labor migrants from very often um, Somalia, um, Bangladesh. I mean, usually nowadays it's the poorest. I would like to emphasize that in the old times, the slaves formed an integral part of the households. Um, the slave children often were educated with the children of the households, except that usually they wouldn't be sent to school and obviously had to work very early on, usually in menial tasks. But um, this shows already that you have very different social classes living very intimately together in the same households and and sharing really um, the same spaces.
0: Mm -hmm. Now we come to the two major historical forces that really shaped Jeddah as a city. In Chapter 6, the economic lifeline of Jeddah, trade and pilgrimage. So in this chapter... um, we learn about the different trade institutions, but at the same time, housing and feeding the pilgrims, the the, the pilgrims as an international concern, health matters, and also the Bedouins. Um, I would like to ask you two questions. The first is: In what ways, Jeddah's sacred and profane, also geographies, shaped economic life, and what were some of the impacts of inter- internationalizing the Hajj and governing? Uh, pilgrimage on the literal society and the Bedouin hinterlands?
1: Well, the major activities, as you mentioned, were trade and pilgrimage. Um, initially, before steam shipping, uh, trade and pilgrimage worked to the same rhythm in that they were both dependent on the monsoon, which also meant that many of the pilgrims sojourned for a very long time in Jeddah before either they would go to Mecca for the actual Hajj or before they could actually return to their homelands, one of the reasons why so many Hajjis eventually decided to settle down and become Jadawis. Um, so in that sense, they worked in a similar rhythm until, of course, the onset of steam shipping, when pilgrims could come in a much more targeted way for the pilgrimage season only. Um, now, the... Shape of Jeddah, these beautiful big houses of which you still find quite a few, um, they were partly built and partly enlarged in order to accommodate the growing number of pilgrims. Um, You have to imagine, I mean, hotels would have been a very seasonal, seasonal, seasonal business, and therefore um, were not really worthwhile. But people who had enough money would actually be able to buy another house, which eventually might be given to their children, but which until then could be used as an abode for pilgrims. And people who didn't have quite that much money would during the pilgrimage season move to the upper floors and give the lower floors to the pilgrims. Um, I think the older interpretation that um, the Hajj was the main motor of, The of trade is not entirely correct because much of that trade was a trade um, where Jeddah served as a redistribution center of goods from the Indian Ocean or from the Mediterranean within the Red Sea but also beyond. Um, In that sense, I think um, it's not just the Hajj which um, sparked the trade, but there are also other dynamics um, which were at work here. Um, at any rate, many of the houses also had huge storage capacity. That is when somebody did not own one of these large um, storage spaces along the main soup, the sukanada. Um Then people might have a house somewhere else nearby, but with la- a large, not cellar, but a large ground floor where, for example, you could uh, store flour or rice or other goods until you resold them or until they were used for the Hajj. Um, Now, internationalizing the Hajj, I mean, the Hajj has always been an international affair, but you're right in that um, the easier travel became the more pilgrims arrived. Um, That, of course, has exponentially um, expanded in the 20th century, but can also be observed with the steam shipping. And that also meant that the imperial powers who ruled over large Muslim populations, the British in India, the Dutch in Indonesia, the French in North Africa, and the Russians in the, um, the southern border regions and the, the southern expanses of the Russian Empire, that these foreign powers became very interested in political Influences which might spread and here particularly anti-imperialism. Mecca was supposed to be a hotbed of pan-Islamism. Um, this is sometimes reminiscent of present day fears of Muslim internationalism. But the other big issue was, of course, health and the, um, current COVID pandemic. Uh, is a modern example, but in the 19th century, the big um, fear were the cholera pandemics um, in the 1830s and then particularly after 1865. And in that context, a lot of health work was done, which was partly sparked by international health conferences, one of them held in Istanbul, um, which aimed at Um, controlling the cholera and controlling pilgrims who were seen to be spreading the cholera, at the same time ignoring, for example, British ships which also were sailing from India and which were also spreading the cholera. But that would have countered, of course, British trade interests and therefore was not quite as much at the centre of imperial concerns as was the control of Muslims who might be spreading the cholera.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and you really uh, explain in, in this chapter about um, the different measures were taken, such as in quarantines and hospitals and elsewhere, and trying to regulate the movement of bodies across space. And in chapter seven, you take this further in governing and regulation diversity, urban government in Jeddah. And in this chapter, we learn about the urban police, uh, robbery, murder, theft, morality, and so on. Um, so I would like to ask you, what is the relationship between enforcing law and order and the exclusionary and inclusionary politics of these different three polities you looked at, the Ottomans, the Sharifians, and the Saudi state?
1: Well, my sense is that the Ottomans initially tried to hold on to the hijaz. I mean, they took it back from Muhammad Ali. Basha of Egypt after um, he, or rather his sons, had uh, defeated the Wahhabis. Um, and then they were trying to hold on. They were trying to, um, to avoid the Sharifs taking uh, too much power back into their own hands. And therefore, there was not all that much control And as the Ottomans were modernizing and trying to become a more modern empire, they also started not only to offer certain things such as basic education, but they also started to try to control provincial and and local politics more. And this is a tendency in a sense, which is very much linked to modernization. So it continues. And of course, it continues. The Sharifians had only a brief period of rule. And that was also a very problematic period because it was during and after the First World War. It was a period of poverty, of um, all sorts of different um, changes. So I would exclude that at the moment for a little bit and rather turn to this, to Saudi rule, Which again started off in a in a fashion where we have a newly created state, which is trying, which is still in its expansionary state. So it's trying to hold on to the territories, and I think this is exemplified by a local maqam from the Ali Reza family, which I mentioned before, remaining in power throughout the Sharifian and the early Saudi rule until he dies in 1932. And that then offers the Saudis a chance to actually appoint somebody from the Najd who's closer to them um, in terms of social relations, but perhaps also culturally. And here, so we can see a kind of slow change in the elite of Jeddah. We, there's of course also immigration because Jeddah is the most important, um, port city of the country. Um, it is an administrative center, even though uh, Mecca and then Riyadh are the capitals. But, um, Jeddah is where a lot of the business is, where the foreign um, embassies are. So there's a lot of business going on in Jeddah. And so we have a lot of immigration from Najd happening and we have a slow elite change and then eventually also, of course, more political control. And I should say that with the um, conquest of the Hijaz in 1924-25, um, there is, of course, also a strong drive to re-educate the locals in religious terms, i.e. to um, uproot all that which the Wahhabis considered to be unlawful innovations, bida, such as smoking, such as music, such as Sufi practices, um, such as the mingling of men and women, such as the consumption of alcohol and what have you. So um, there is much earlier than in political terms, in moral and religious terms, a real change and a real attempt to control. That this is not a full control can be shown through all the reports which say that whenever the king comes, the moral police also is very strong, and whenever the king leaves, the moral police more or less leave with him. So the sense that you have the same morality um, implemented throughout the year is something which happens perhaps in the 1950s or 60s, but not necessarily already after the mid-20s.
0: The last chapter, the eighth chapter, The Disappearance and Return of all Jeddah on the Temporality of Trans-Local Relations, you bring nicely the narrative of the book uh, back to a full circle. Um, when you talk again about the slogan of Jeddah as different, um, so the period in, in which your research ends is in 1947, when the walls of Jeddah were torn down. What are the historical and metaphorical role? Uh, let me repeat that, sorry. <laughs> uh, you're following? Mm-hmm. Hello? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yes. yes. Uh, in the eighth chapter, the disappearance and return of all Jeddah on the temporality of translocal relations. You bring the narrative of the book nicely to a full circle when you talk again about the slogan of Jeddah as different. And your research ends in 1947, when the walls of Jeddah were torn down. Uh, To your mind, what historical and metaphorical role the wall played and how did the oil boom transform the urban landscape and social makeup of the city?
1: Well, I think for the um, symbolical importance of the wall, it is very interesting to see um, that many of the local histories that are published now contain lists of the families who lived within the confines of the wall. The wall obviously initially being a main defense against Bedouin attacks, um, because that these lists of families, in a sense, constitute who is a real Jadawi. And it also shows you immediately who is not considered to be a real Jadawi, namely those who lived in the suburbs. So it is very much a a line of social in and exclusion. And this is irrespective of the social class of the people listed there. Um, Now, the oil boom transformed... Uh, the, the city, not only in so far that the wall was torn down and the city expanded, but the wall was torn down for a reason, namely to allow for car traffic um, linked, obviously, to the oil boom. And um, that also showed that uh, it was no longer needed in terms of security. This meant that people moved out and um, while some families uh, started to build new family compounds for enlarged families with a number of houses surrounded by a wall. Many uh, families also dispersed throughout the new suburbs, established more nuclear families. So there's also a whole social transformation. And of course, you have a massive immigration of people from the countryside and of foreigners with the oil boom. And then, of course, a massive modernization of the city. You have uh, New layouts. You have a lot of um, uh, new businesses. You have a new port which is being built, etc., um, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So the city transforms to the extent that the old city, for for a while, really became a kind of urban slum, while it had been the actual nucleus. And I think it's only now that this is, to some extent at least, reversing. So the the wall really symbolized the social identity of the city, but also the physical identity of the city, which nowadays with the urban, with the World Heritage is not quite so because the area that is being preserved is smaller than the original area within
0: the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really recommend the book uh, because it's not just for people who are interested in the history of Jeddah, but also by reading this book, the reader will have a sense about really the other uh, maritime societies of the Arabian Peninsula because Jeddah in many ways resembles Basra, re- resembles Kuwait, Manama, Muscat, uh, part of, uh, you know, Adan also you can include it, Mocha and so on. Um, and the book uh, brings many uh, groups together in, in one space and tries to map that space for the reader. And the way you organize the book is really useful in the sense that each chapter could really stand on its own if somebody is interested in one dimension of the city more than the other. You would like to check up some references about specific institution. It's all there, well organized. So thank you really for writing this book. We need more of these kind of books about different poor cities in the Indian Ocean. Before we move to our last traditional question, can you please read uh, a paragraph from the book to give the reader a sense of reading the book? Yes, thank you. I
1: will, but perhaps I should start with a small caveat, because I'll be talking about Jadarer, and just in light of what you were just saying about also the similarities, um, this is not meant to in a sense, um, say that Jeddah is also that different from the other cities you just mentioned, but that it is different from the other Saudi cities. That is how it is locally conceived. And here it is. Jeddah Reh in many ways constitutes the quintessence of Jeddah's urban charisma and soul, defended proudly by many locals and felt even by visitors today. In spite of the many changes the city has undergone, since the period discussed in this book, which arguably constitutes the historical basis of the notion. If we take Jadarer as a shorthand for cosmopolitanism, we draw attention to the different ways in which diversity was part and parcel of life in the Hijaz. Muslim cosmopolitanism helps explain exclusionary tendencies, while cosmopolitan practices are one way of approaching I quote, a set of practices, a disposition, and a specific cultural and social condition that allows Muslims to inhabit the contemporary world. These notions will henceforth be referred to only for these purposes, as cosmopolitanism works far less well as a tool when one seeks to explain how the diverse society of Jeddah functioned in everyday life, how hierarchies were established, and conflicts fought
0: out or negotiated. Beautiful. Well, Ulrike, we've taken a lot of your time, uh, and I would like to ask you our last traditional question. What are you working on now? Uh, Can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on?
1: Well, right now, one of the things I'm working on is an article on a cinematic representation of Jeddah in a film on cinematic representations of the city. Um, I found that a very beautiful um, way, and um, I would like to explore that a bit more in detail. In general, I think there are a couple of things I would like to work on. One is the period from the 1950s to 70s, something I did not cover in the book. Another issue, which is quite different, um, goes back more to my Indian Ocean um, interests and spans the intellectual and trade connections of a number of individuals, in particular of one, um, person who's, who was known very early on as a Salafi, somebody called Muhammad Nassif. He was the leading intellectual of Jeddah between the 1920s and 1970. I think he died. Um, and he was quite instrumental in establishing links between Salafi intellectuals in Cairo, in Damascus, in Baghdad, on the one hand, and between um, Wahhabi scholars and Wahhabi scholarship. And that is another topic I'm very interested in. Which of these lines I'll pursue,
0: I have to see. Very interesting. We will be looking forward to these projects. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored the fascinating book, A History of Jeddah, The Gate to Mecca in the 19th and the 20th centuries, published this year by Cambridge University Press. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.